sentire media. Hi listeners of a history of Italy. As you can notice, I'm not Mike, but you will be able to listen to another great episode of him in a minute. I am David Cott, and I'm the host of the History of Spain podcast, a podcast where I talk about the history of my motherland right from the beginning. As you know, the histories of Spain and Italy are quite interconnected, beginning with the Roman conquest, we have the Spanish rule over southern Italy, the Italian wars of the 16th century, or the service to the Spanish crown of notable Italians such as Christopher Columbus or Alejandro Farnesio. I'm just mentioning a few examples of how the history of Italy and Spain intertwine. But if you want to listen to the whole story of that connection, or you are into Spanish history, I invite you to join me in my journey to unveil the history of Spain. Now, I leave it to you, Mike. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 61, Prelude to Lignano. Before we begin, just a little technical note. Some of you have told me that you miss the little reenactment sketches. Well, they're still there. I've just put them at the end of the recording, after the credits and music. That way, those of you who enjoy them still have them, while those of you who find that they interrupt the flow and rhythm of the episode can just skip ahead once you hear the end music. Now, back to our story. We left off last time with the communes of northern Italy finally getting together and realizing that there was safety in numbers and banding together to form the Lombard League. There is also the important story of the Oath of Pontida, which has grown into something of a legend over the years, with dramatic sword unsheathing and swearing on Bibles, although not everyone is even 100% sure the meeting actually happened. In any case, many communes of northern Italy, with Milan in the lead, had banded together for mutual help not openly against Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, but the intention was clear. Indeed, no sooner had he heard the news of the formation of the League than Barbarossa declared the League illegal, all except the traditional imperial allies of Lodi and Cremona. However, there was now no stopping the momentum. The League was also supported by the Pope Alexander III, who was still at loggerheads with the emperor, who had elected an anti-pope to oppose him. It also had the support of the Norman monarchy, which in 1166 got a new king with William II, son of William I. That's not all. The Byzantine emperor, Manuel Comnenus, also got on board. Granted, he couldn't do much with no troops on the ground, but he could give financial support, and, let's not forget, they still had the friendly port in Ancona, on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea. The fact that the Pope was on board 
was also very important, not from a military point of view, but it gave the league the moral standing it needed. The real leader of the Christian world was on their side. It was in honor of the Pope that the league performed another city planning job, after the rebuilding of Milan. That is, in this case, they created a completely new city. In the area near the traditionally pro-imperial Pavia, which lay to the northeast, it was built in an area which could control the important Tanaro River on lands that officially belonged to the counts of Monferrato, although they had little control over it. We'll talk quite a bit about Alessandria as we continue. For the moment, suffice it to say. That the foundation of the city of Alessandria was a smack in the face to Emperor Barbarossa, who from then on would be obsessed by the idea of destroying it. The League met in 1168 and gave itself some rectors, who could organize and coordinate it. The main function of the League was mutual military support, but there was other stuff going on. One function was to settle disputes before any commune could go crying to the emperor and provoke an expedition. To give you an idea of a dispute, let me mention an example that is close to home, my home. On the fourteenth of December, eleven sixty-eight, the consul of Cremona, Albertone, in the presence of representatives of Milan, Piacenza, Modena, and Parma. In the name of the League, ordered the city of Reggio Emilia, where I live, to stop molesting the little village of Cavriago, where I'm going to live if the builders actually get a move on. Another sign of the growing influence of the League was the adoption in various cities of the carroccio, the Milanese war cart or wagon with the communal insignia and altar that would be wheeled into battle. And act as a communal standard, like a flag or the Roman eagles. For example, the first to do this in imitation of Milan was Bologna in 1170. In short, the League was pretty busy. Who knew? They may have even started thinking of some sort of shared sports event, or a youth club, or a multi-communal book club. It is an interesting example. Of a form of administration above the communes, you couldn't really think of it as the start of a national government at all. There was no talk, nor even ideas, of some sort of more solid union. No, if you wanted an example, you could think of something like the United Nations. Luckily for the League, in all of this time, Barbarossa was busy back home in Germany. In his absence, Frederick didn't leave the Italian situation to proceed as it would. He sent down the Archbishop of Mainz, Christian, as in his name was Christian. Obviously, he was a Christian; otherwise, he wouldn't have been a very good archbishop. Now, not much could be done in northern Italy until the emperor descended, but they could make sure things went their way further down south. Christian ended up in Tuscany. In Siena, to try and mediate a dispute between Pisa and Genoa over who had rights to Sardinia.
Unfortunately, the Sardinians didn't really have much of a say in this. He ended up actually being caught up in a war with Genoa and Lucca on one side and Pisa and Florence on the other, being defeated and having to leave Tuscany. He headed over to the eastern Adriatic coast to lay siege to Ancona, which, as we mentioned, was a potential base of operations for the Byzantines, who were in on the league and may at some point have decided to attack. That military operation also failed. It was by now 1174, and Barbarossa was ready. Due to the fact that many Alpine passes were now controlled by the cities of the League, he had to go quite far west, entering Italy through the difficult Val Susa, the Susa Valley, aided in the endeavour by the ever-faithful Duke of Savoy, Umberto III. Remember to keep the Savoys in mind as an important family for the future. The very distant future, mind you, but for the future. Turin opened its gates, and the emperor then went on to lay siege to Asti. The internal friction here between the pro- and anti-imperial factions was very strong, and soon this city also opened its gates to the emperor. Frederick was now free to make his way down to his first main objective, the new city of Alessandria. The citizens would perhaps have been willing to surrender, but the Count of Monferrato, the ally of the emperor who had lost lands to the foundation of the city, wanted it erased, as most likely did Barbarossa himself. The inhabitants of Alessandria were now resisting for the survival of their city. The siege started on the 27th of October, 1174. In the seven years of its existence, Alessandria had grown quite rapidly, bringing local cities and villages under its influence, and we can estimate that there were between 10,000 and 15,000 inhabitants, more or less average for the time, if you exclude Milan with its around 80,000 inhabitants. No serious stone walls had been built, but the river, moats and wooden palisades made quite an effective defence. What's more, the siege had started after harvest time, so there was plenty of food inside the city and very little outside. After two months of the siege, the situation was dire for the besiegers. A contingent of Bohemians deserted and headed home, with many being captured by the Milanese as they made their way back. At least in the bustling metropolis, they found the food that they had deserted for. The League was more than ready to get involved, but they had to tread carefully. Christian, the Bishop of Mainz, was heading up in the northeasterly direction and threatening Bologna with the aid of some of the cities in the area that looked suspiciously upon the expansion of Bologna. The League managed to organise itself on two fronts, sending an army to relieve Bologna as it was organising the great expedition to lift the siege of Alessandria. We must remember that northern Italy was very densely populated and that military service 
was compulsory for all males of age, so it wasn't that difficult to raise large armies. They consolidated the alliance of the League with an exchange of Podesta, the city administrators, so that top League men were spread around. By this time, records were quite good, so we have all the names of the Podesta and where they went. Obviously, I won't go through all of them, but I will mention Nero Grasso. First of all, because his name is funny. Nero means black, and Grasso means fat, so he was black fat. The real reason is this. Do you remember when we spoke about the siege of Crema a few episodes back, when Barbarossa attached prisoners from the city to the siege towers and the inhabitants shot at them anyway? Well, Nero Grasso was one of those human shields, and he survived. You can imagine that he sort of had a little bit of a grudge against the emperor. He was sent to Bipodista in Parma, and had one of the very first carrocci built there. In the end, the expedition to relieve Alessandria was also ready. There was great participation and enthusiasm. To give you an example, Cremona had been exempt from the expedition because they had a contingent that was busy against the Bishop of Mainz. But when the army heading for Alessandria neared their city, Many inhabitants joined anyway, running out to join the ranks. Two commanders were chosen for their military skills, representing the two main areas of Lombardy and Veneto. They were Anselmo da Dovara and Ezzelino da Romano. The army left from Piacenza, keeping the Po River between them and the pro-imperial Pavia and using the river to get supplied by the Piacenza River fleet. They moved into the territory of Pavia, sacking and destroying, sending refugees into the city. All the Pavesi could do was to watch from across the river while the League army threatened to wave their private parts at their aunties. Soon enough, the road to Alessandria was open. Meanwhile, Barbarossa, seeing that he was getting nowhere, had asked the inhabitants of Alessandria for a truce. At this point, it is not clear if he broke the truce because it was actually a trick or he panicked, having got word of the advancing League army. He ordered an attack on the defences while sending a commando down a tunnel they had dug into the city. The SWAT team was initially successful catching the defenders by surprise. Soon, however, the alarm was raised and all the citizens, including the women and the elderly, fell upon the imperial soldiers. Those that did not die in the ensuing battle, street by street, perished when the tunnel they were trying to get out of collapsed. The defenders took advantage now of the situation and made their way out, managing to set fire to one of the wooden towers in the imperial camp and killing around 300 knights and mercenary Genoese crossbowmen. The shame that fell upon Barbarossa for the failed attack and violating the truce echoed all the way back to Germany. Now fearing encirclement, Frederick broke camp and made his way towards Pavia, 
the League army managed to catch up with him near Montebello. It was the first time that the communal army was laid out in battle formation against the imperial army. They were divided by region, each around the Carroccio. However, the communal army would only attack if provoked. After all, they didn't want the destruction of the emperor, only to have their requests granted. Plus, many feared the retaliation of the emperor. If he won, he already shown the fate of cities that opposed him, with the destruction of cities such as Milan, Crema and Spoleto earlier on. For his part, after a long failed winter, Frederick had no desire for a great pitched battle. A truce was agreed, and on the 23rd of April 1175, Frederick reached the safety of Pavia. For their part, the communes who had set out to relieve Alessandria could claim victory. Alessandria, for now, was safe. Peace talks started up, but they were long and complicated due to the great distance on so many points. It was a clash of two totally opposing points of view on how Italian society should be governed. In the meantime, both sides continued to consolidate their position. Frederick, in particular, had had to disband some of the troops that he could not afford to pay anymore. But things had been balanced out with the arrival of the troops led by Christian of Mainz. Barbarossa had started a full-blown diplomatic campaign, managing to bring Como onto his side. This was not a huge issue in numbers of fighting men, but... It was strategically important because Como controlled one of the more direct and safer Alpine passes into Italy. In the end, the peace talks failed. Journalist and historian Indro Montanelli points to the issue of the papal schism as the main bone of contention. The communes would have had to abandon the Pope and recognize Frederick's man. More recently, Paolo Grillo points to the clause that would have required the city of Alessandria to be completely dismantled, something the communes could never have done, for mutual support was the whole point of the League, which would have been useless if they had started abandoning members. The hostilities were on again. Barbarossa sent letters to Germany to ask for reinforcements. Meanwhile, the first to suffer was Alessandria, with Barbarossa raiding the surrounding countryside. But the city, led by the Podesta Rodolfo da Concesio, attacked the lands around Monferrato and Pavia, along with the armies of the League, who also added the countryside of Como to the list. The Emperor managed to score another important diplomatic victory, bringing Tortona to his side which meant that with Pavia to the northeast, Monferrato to the north, and Tortona now to the east, Alessandria was almost completely surrounded, considering Genoa to the west was not really actively involved, but also not particularly friendly to the League. He also sent the ever-loyal Archbishop of Mainz, Christian, down to cut off any possible help from the Pope or the Normans. Not only that, but when William of Sicily put together an army and marched north to face him, he was routed at the Battle of Celle di Carsoli and sent packing. 
The message for the Pope and the Normans was clear. If you meddle in what's coming next, after we are victorious, you are next. Things were looking pretty good for the Emperor, which meant that they weren't looking good for the League. Frederick Barbarossa's new strategy meant that he would not have his reinforcements march all the way around through Burgundy and into the Susa Valley, but down through the Alps of the newly pro-imperial Como and from there to Pavia. There was only one problem. The lands between Como and Pavia were far from pro-imperial. These lands were under the control of Milan. And somewhere in the countryside to the west of the great city was a little, at that time, unimportant town called Lignano. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Remember to go and check out the History of Spain podcast on your favorite podcatcher. I'd like in particular to thank, as always, my Patreon supporters, the, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron, Benjamin, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent. And the tippy top, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Sen, Paolo, and reactionary Venetian. And thank you, thank you, thank you to the new members, Bill and Eric. Not 100% sure if I'd thanked Daniel as a new member. If I haven't, apologies. I'm thanking you now. And thanks very much to everyone. As always, remember you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com And at the same URL, you can click through to social media, look at maps and timelines, and all you need to navigate our country's complicated history in our story so far. Until next time, thanks very much. And... Arrivederci. Okay, lads. Oh, this is worse than I thought. The whole city's up in arms. Oh, yeah, man. Don't tell me about it. Poor Reynold got killed by a bunch of angry bakers. Bakers? Yeah. Yeah, poor chap. Beaten to death with three-day-old baguettes. What? That's not as bad as poor Henry. What happened? He was torn apart by an angry bomb. Poor guy. There's not much you can do against a gang of angry men. Not men. What? Not men. He was killed by near the house where they were having a sewing club. A gang of grannies got him. Grannies? Yeah. Horrible it was. Oh, so where's Conrad? Well... Well what? Speak up, man! Well, you see, there's this very menacing goat. Oh, goodness me. Sentire Media 
Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sintiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.